Wow. Thanks, Ken. I can't help but acknowledge my friends John and Susan Susan Horseman this morning. Horseman. Um, it it was it just warmed my heart to see you walk in the sanctuary this morning with your new grandson. And I leaned over to, to Norm and said, it's day number one for your, for your son. And so what a, what a blessing it is. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. And congratulations to the Bruins. And number five, Norm said they have enough for a basketball team. So we're very excited uh, for your whole family. Well, open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk. We're getting close to the home stretch. And next week, Lord willing, we'll com- complete this book together. Last week, we finished our, our time together in our worship service by focusing on two very important lessons. The lesson number one was, what can we learn about the human heart? And there are several things that we observed. First, we said that apart from God's grace, the human heart will always, always, always gravitate towards sin. If God's grace has not yet come crashing into your life, you will, by definition, always gravitate towards sin. Another lesson we learned is that the only thing that can subdue the rebel heart is the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that can subdue the rebel heart is the gospel. The gospel is that which we have been singing about this morning. And then we learn that we must stop relying on ourselves. You'll recall that I mentioned uh, a so-called Christian book. It's a book that is a, uh, a book that is Christian in name only. But one of the messages in this book is believe in yourself. May I just encourage you to stop believing in yourself and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you place all your faith in the risen Savior, you have all the confidence that you need to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God. What can we learn about the human heart? That's the first lesson. The second lesson was, what can we learn about God? And the the brief lessons that we learned are powerful lessons. First, we learned that God always gets the last word. Have you learned this in the Christian life? Uh, Jason read earlier this, this uh, section of Scripture from the book of Job. And you remember that Job asked God, why, when, where, how come? And God says, I will answer you out of the storm. You see, God always gets the last word. You don't want to get in a wrestling match with God unless you realize that God himself will get the last word. And then we learn that God is calling the nations to humble themselves before him. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And this is precisely what John Calvin was thinking in the very first line of his book, The Institutes, where he said, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. These two lessons help to establish the necessary context for Habakkuk's final prayer in the final chapter, that is chapter 3. When we learn who we are in relationship to the living God, then and only then will we begin to pray prayers 
like Habakkuk. Would you stand with me as we read this section of Scripture in Habakkuk chapter 3? This is the prayer of Habakkuk. This is the word of the living God. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land in Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on the horses, on the chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, its lifted its hands on high, and the sun and the moon stood on their, in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we have learned in this very important book. We thank you for the prophet Habakkuk for his transparency, for his honesty, for the struggle that ensued in his heart. And we thank you that you resolved that struggle. We thank you that he was a man who was faithful. He was a man of, of God-centered faith. And as we will learn today, he was a man who uttered God-centered prayers, especially in this chapter. And so use this section of Scripture, use this godly man to, to teach us, to help us, to encourage us. May our hearts be soft and pliable to hear the message that comes forth from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message this morning, as we make our way to the end of this book, is A God-Centered Prayer. Now, this is the first part of, of two, and Lord willing, we'll finish next week. I want you to remember the big picture in the book of Habakkuk, the, the prophet of Judah, simply put, is wrestling with the tension between God's sovereign purposes and the evil events that he allows in this world. This is the tension. God sovereignly ordains all things, but in the mind and the heart of Habakkuk, how can a God who ordains all things also allow these evil events to take place without being evil himself? And so to review, we saw Habakkuk's first lament. 
which is essentially this. How can a holy God, how can a God who, as we learn in Isaiah chapter 6, is holy, 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 how can this God allow evil to exist? How can this holy God allow evil in the universe, in in the earth more specifically, to not only exist, but to actually seem like it thrives? What is the answer to that question? We saw God's response and we learned that God alone has the prerogative. Here are a few lessons that we've discovered together. We've learned that God works his eternal plan in the context of history. As we look back all the way to eternity past, to this day, this very day, we see that throughout the ages, throughout redemptive history, God works out his eternal plan. And that eternal plan is not done, is it? There is still more to come. We learned also that God's ways are infinitely wiser and higher than anything we can imagine. So whenever you begin to to scratch your head like the prophet Habakkuk, remember God's ways are higher than your ways. That God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And then we learned a a lesson that I, I, I alluded to a moment ago. It's a lesson that I have found is a difficult pill for many Christians to swallow, but it is a pill that we must swallow nonetheless. Whether it takes you a day or two days or a week or a month or years or the rest of your Christian life to discover and to embrace this, it is something we need to embrace, and that is God ordains everything that comes to pass. Now, if you're wrestling with that, and certainly some of you are, Just think about the alternative. If God does not ordain everything that comes to pass, then there is something that will take place by chance. There is something outside the scope of his sovereign control. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world like that. I don't want to live in a world where something is up to chance. I remember the late R.C. Sproul used to say, there are no maverick molecules in God's universe. And that has stuck with me for many years. There are no maverick molecules in God's universe. He sovereignly ordains everything that comes to pass. Then we looked at the second lament of the prophet. And it goes something like this. God, you are holy. How can you tolerate this? And that brings us to the final chapter where Habakkuk utters what I like to refer to as a God-centered prayer. And I think that's exactly where all of us need to be today. Wouldn't you agree? We all need to be in a place, no matter what's happening in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, that we're uttering God-centered prayers. That is to say, when trials strike our lives, and indeed they will, we should be a people who utter God-centered prayers. When disease inflicts our bodies, we should respond with God-centered prayers. When temptation stares us in the face, we as the people of God should utter God-centered prayers. When bitter providence surrounds us, we should respond with God-centered prayers. You remember the poet and the great hymn writer and the friend of William Wilberforce, a man by the name of William Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R, William Cooper. He 
wrote many poems and many hymns, and he battled depression for his whole life. And in one of the most striking poems I have ever read, he he utters these words, Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. The first time I ever heard that poem came from a friend of mine whose wife was battling a brain tumor. And she battled for many months. She went to to Mexico to receive some some, uh, alternative treatments to try to see if that would help. And nothing helped. And God took her home. I'll never forget the day. I believe it was in early January, probably over 20 years ago. He called and he left a message on my voice machine, on my answering machine. I'm sure you don't remember those. And he said something like this, the Lord has taken my wife home. And then he quoted this poem from Cooper, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Within hours of the Lord taking his wife home to glory. This is a man who is uttering God-centered prayers, both Cooper and my friend. In chapter 3, we will discover a prayer that the Jewish people would pray as their enemies drew near, as they could hear the march of the boots, as they could hear the the snorting of the horses, as they could hear the, the clanging of weapons, as they could smell the army drawing forth into the city of Jerusalem, this would be the song that would be sung by the exiled Jews. I stand with John Piper, who writes these very important words. As a pastor, I do not think it is my job to entertain you in the last days. It is not my calling to help you have chipper feelings while the whole creation groans. My job is to put the kind of ballast in the belly of your boat so that these, when these waves crash against your life, you will not capsize, but make it to the harbor of heaven, battered and wounded, full of faith and joy. Close quote. So you see, what Piper is saying is that one of the jobs, one of the very important jobs of the pastor is to stop telling jokes. Stop being cute in the pulpit. Stop trying to get people to like you because you're cool. He says one of the very important jobs of the pastor and for elders in every local church is to prepare people for the difficult days that will come. So on the day day you breathe your last, you will be filled with hope, that you will be filled with God-centered joy, not shaking your fist at the living God. You'll be a faithful man. You'll be a faithful woman. Habakkuk's God-centered prayer, we will discover, both today and next week, has four critical elements. This morning, we're going to look at the first element in that prayer. And Lord willing, next week, we will do elements two, three, and four. First of all, as we look at his God-centered prayer, after all that he has endured, after all the questions that he poses to God and the answers that he receives from God, we find Habakkuk in the following posture. I stand in awe of the living God. Notice in chapter 3, he is not shaking his fist. He does not have his hands on his waist. 
He is not upset. He is not angry. angry. Rather, he stands in awe of the living God. So here is the first component. This is the first major component. It's the only one we'll look at today. Is that in verses 2 to 15, we see that he contemplates the character of God. That is the first mark of a God-centered prayer for both Habakkuk and for, for you and I as followers of Jesus is that we are to contemplate the character of God. Here's how he does it. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Here's the first thing that he remembers as he contemplates the character of God. He says, I stand in awe of your work, O Lord. This morning, can you say that that is your posture? As you come before the living God, you say, God, I don't understand your ways. I realize that your ways are higher than my ways. But can you honestly say from your heart, Lord, I stand in awe of your work. Now, remember the context. Habakkuk has not been tiptoeing through the tulips, has he? God told him, they're coming for you. The Chaldean army is coming for you. They're coming for Judah. They are my sovereign instruments of judgment. And how does Habakkuk respond? Not with anger, not with bitterness, not with recoiling questions. Rather, he says, I stand in awe of your amazing works. And he addresses, if you look at verse 2, in the ESV, the first two words are, O Lord. And I want you to pay close attention to capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is The word that is transliterated from the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yahweh. John Frame, in his magisterial work, The Doctrine of God, says many words describe God in Scripture, like eternal, infinite, and love. But most often, God identifies himself as Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, Frame says he performs his mighty deeds so his people will know that I am the Lord. That's why he performs his mighty deeds. His his lordship, Frame says, is the central message of the Old Testament. And the lordship of Jesus Christ is the central message of the new. Now think about that in broad terms. The main message from from Genesis to Malachi is this. God is Lord. He is Yahweh. The main message of all the way from Matthew to the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ is Lord. And what Frame does is he goes on to, to articulate the essence of that lordship. What is, what is this lordship all about? And I realize we, we really need to take the time here. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. Frames says that there are three crucial aspects of this word Yahweh. I want to share them with you. The first word is power. 
What is Habakkuk referring to when he says, O Lord, I stand in awe of your work. He is acknowledging the power of Yahweh. I'll never forget reading the little book by Jerry Bridges. And many of the women at Christ Fellowship have read this book. And I, I, I would urge you. I just gave another copy away last week to one of the guests that was here with us. The title of the book is Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. It's a life-changing book. It's a phenomenal book. I see some of the women shaking their heads. Here is the verse. If you said, Pastor Dave, what was the book about? I would automatically go to Psalm chapter 115, verse 3. I remember discovering this verse for the first time reading Bridges' book, and it, and it impacted me. Our Lord, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Many of you have heard me lament what I like to call the love affair with free will in the church. It's the question I hear more than anything else in ministry. It goes like this. What about free will? I mean, it, it, it's like a country song. What about free will? I hear it over and over and over again. But here, here's the bigger question. And it's a better question. What about God's free will? That's one I don't hear. What about God's free will? Well, we learn in Psalm 115.3 that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Genesis chapter 18 in a conversation with Abraham and Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There's a powerful rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is lamenting the dreaded thorn in the flesh. And what did Paul do three times? Take it away. It's another country song. Take it away, take it away, take it away, right? Have you heard that song? Some of us had prayed that in our Christian lives. And here is what he hears from the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In a few weeks, we'll have the privilege of turning our attention to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we will read in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the verses that were instrumental in the life of a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther and these verses say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When Habakkuk cries out to the living God, when he says, I stand in awe of who you are, Yahweh, he is acknowledging the power of the living God. Frame introduces us to another word. Habakkuk is not only referring to the power of God, he's referring to the authority of God. John Frame helps us again. He says the relationship between control and authority is one between might and right. Control means that God has the power to direct the whole course of nature 
and history as he pleases. But authority means that he has the right to do that. You see the distinction. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read, Behold to the Lord your God, belong the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. That is to say, the earth and the entire cosmos belongs to God. Job 41 verse 1, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Or Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Please remember, God is not only the God of power, he is the God of authority. But there's one additional word that Frame helps us with. Habakkuk refers to Yahweh as a God who is also a God of presence. He's a God of power, he's a God of authority, but he is a God of presence. Frame explains it to us. God is covenantally present. That is a loaded statement. He is covenantally present. He is with his creatures to bless them in accordance with the terms of his covenant. Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. Imagine being Moses. God, how am I going to pull this off? And the God of power and authority says to him, I will be with you. You remember David in Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand will hold me. God is a covenant-keeping God. He's with his people. I was sharing with Jereen this morning, who's in the nursery with Nathan, taking care of the kids, that early this morning I began a new book about world missions. And uh, Dan and for the rest of the missions team, this would be a, a, a powerful book to study through together. It's a, it's a series of stories about missionaries all around the world. There are stories about Muslims being converted. And why are the Muslims being converted? Because they see that in the sacred scriptures is a message of salvation. It's a message they don't see in the Quran. They, they see the gospel being lived before them as the people of God live with, with grace and with peace. And Muslims were being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, through the example of Christians, but more importantly, through the proclamation of the Word of God. As I read one of these stories this morning about the adversity, about the the pain, about the suffering that these missionaries experience, I was reminded of Isaiah chapter 43, where we have this promise, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's presence. 
And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. You see, the promise that we, we learn here is that the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is with his people. He is a God of power, authority, and presence. And so Habakkuk, back in Habakkuk 3, verse 2, he stands in awe of this God's work. He stands in awe of who Yahweh is. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work do I fear. The Hebrew word translated work describes an activity that involves the making of something. The making of something. So Habakkuk says when he gazes on God's work, what it elicits in his heart, what it elicits in, elicits in his mind is that he reveres the living God. What does the world tell us about the cosmos? The world tells us that it happened by accident. We need to always turn our attention back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we learn that God created the heavens and the earth, what do we do? We stand in awe of the work of the living God. Job chapter 38, 4-7. God says to Job, where were you? Now think about this. Job offers these questions. He's essentially interrogating God. And here is what the, the God of power, authority, and presence says to Job. Where were you? If I had boots, boots on, I would be shaking at my boots. Are you with me? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Do I detect a little bit of sarcasm? Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. May I say this, that the theory of evolution is the most ridiculous theory that's ever been hoisted on American people. May I also be so bold to say that if you have embraced evolutionary theory, if you're here and you embrace dialectic materialism or the evolutionary theory that, that human beings and the universe is a result of, of chance plus time, you have bought the lie. It is the most ridiculous lie that has ever been embraced by people. Thus says the Lord God in Isaiah 42, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and comes from it and gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to all who walk in it. I used to do a an illustration with young people when I was a youth pastor. I'll do it with you just for fun. I would say, take a deep breath. Ready? We do it with me. Okay. Oh, Leona, you just took. <laughs> okay, we take the breath 
and just hold it. Now I'm just going to talk for a while, right? The only reason that you can, you can let that breath out. The only reason you can let that breath out is because God gave it to you. Every breath we take is a, a, a gift from the living God. Isaiah 45, 18, thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and, and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. This is the address when Paul stands at the Areopagus and he's, he's, he's addressing the pagan philosophers, the Epicureans. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. That sounds so much different than evolutionary theory. God made the cosmos and Habakkuk acknowledges that God is the maker and he glories in it. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created what? All things. And by your will they existed and were created. And so here's what Habakkuk helps us with. He helps us to understand a very important lesson. He reminds us to refocus our perspective by gazing on the mighty works of God. Think with me about something you're dealing with in your life right now. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's a physical malady. Maybe it's a, a struggle with a neighbor. Maybe it has something to do with school. Whatever it is you're dealing with, are you able to reorient your perspective and to reorient it Godward by revering who God is and rejoicing in the works that he has done for his glory? This is the first aspect of this God-centered prayer. I stand in awe of your work, O Lord. Move ahead with me to verses 3 and 4. He continues and says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from the Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Here he says, God, you are the God of glory and splendor. You are the God of glory and splendor. I can't help but wonder if he was thinking about Psalm chapter 21, verse 13, that says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is all a part of what it means to utter a God-centered prayer. Number three, look at verses five to seven quickly. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at its heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tent of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Here is a part of his God-centered prayers. He contemplates the character of God. Habakkuk says in so many words, you are the God of mighty power. I must confess that I picked up the phrase mighty power from Dr. Luis Palau over 20 years ago in a preaching course I took with him. He said it several times a day for a whole week. Mighty power is the way he would say it in his deep Argentine accent. 
But this is a portrait of the living God. It's the God who Habakkuk worships, the God of mighty power. God exerts his power over everything in the created order, and this power leaves people trembling. If the power of God does not leave you trembling, something is awry. Something is misfiring in your Christian life. And perhaps you've come this morning and and you're not trembling before the power of God. Therefore, some deep-seated repentance needs to take place in your life. Or if you're here this morning and you just feel numb, you just feel like, I'm just not getting it. Like, I'll I'll be so bold to say this. The sermon's just not doing it for me today, Pastor. It's just not reaching my heart. Let it start reaching your heart right now by saying, God, I turn from my sin and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize I need to bow before your holy presence. I need to tremble before your power. Finally, as he contemplates before, contemplates the character of God, verses 8 to 15 that I won't read. But notice verse 8. Let's read verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation? That word wrath, an unpopular word, as you know, in our culture today, means to be angry or to express aversion or antipathy toward someone. Is God angry against sin? Is God angry with sinners? The answer from the Bible is a resounding yes. God is angry with sin. He's angry with sinners. These verses, writes one man, describe the cosmic battle where the Lord, the divine warrior, overcomes the cosmic powers. The Lord, he says, will overcome the powers of darkness. The rivers, the mountains, seas, sun, and moon will all be affected by the Lord's victorious coming in judgment against sinners and deliverance for his people. This eschatological language not only anticipates the Lord's coming in Habakkuk's near future, but also the day of the Lord at the end of time. That is to say, it affects Habakkuk in real time and real space, and it affects, affects you and I as well. Notice the six aspects of our victorious God that occur from verses 12 to 15, without reading the text here. You march through the earth with fury. Verse 12, you trample down the nations in wrath. Verse 13, you save your people. Verse 13b, you crush the head of the house of the wicked. If you ever wonder what God's response to wickedness is, always go back to Habakkuk 3, verse 13. He crushes the head of the house of the wicked. Verse 14, you pierce his head. With his own spears. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses. Now, one of the major lessons that we have learned over the last several weeks in the book of Habakkuk is that God is greatly glorified when the people of God wait. You remember that lesson? God is glorified when we wait for him to work on our behalf. And so in Habakkuk 3, 
This man of God utters a God-centered prayer, a prayer that leads him, first of all, to contemplate the character of the living God. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you're going through this week, I, I plead with you, I urge you to, to follow this prayer as a template, to follow this prayer as a way of responding to the adversity, as a way of responding to the pain, as a way to respond to the fear of the future, as a way to be God-centered. I urge you to respond to, to God with a faith that is God-centered. And when you do, here's what happens. There's pre, three practical things that will take place in your life. When you utter a God-centered prayer, everything begins to come into focus. Everything begins to come into perspective. And so the pain begins to make sense. The adversity begins to make sense. The suffering begins to make sense. The persecution begins to make sense. Why? Because you're seeing everything through the lens of the purposes of God who ordains everything that comes to pass, who knows the end from the beginning. Nothing takes God by surprise, does it? Number two, when you contemplate the character of, t- character of God, as Habakkuk does here, your faith begins to blossom. Let me encourage you, if you're struggling this morning, one of the greatest things you can do is not only read the scriptures, but also find a good book about the attributes of God. Let me recommend two. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. One of the best books you'll ever read on the attributes of God. Another book is called simply The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. They're both available very cheap on Amazon, on the Kindle version. Grab those books and devour those books. Because here's what happens. When you begin to contemplate the character of God, when you learn about his attributes, what the scripture says he's like, not what you want him to be like, your faith will begin to blossom. Thirdly, and finally, when you contemplate the character of God, you are led to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which reminds you of his gospel. On January the 8th, 1956, a 28-year-old missionary by the name of Jim Elliott was martyred with four of his buddies, Christian missionaries who sought to share the message of the gospel with a tribe in Ecuador. Years after his death, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote these words. And these are gripping words. This woman who, who lost her husband said, to be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. To be a follower of the crucified sooner or later means an encounter with the cross. My question today is, have you had a personal encounter with Christ at his cross? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? This morning, can you say that the, that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has, has covered my every sin? Or are you still under the wrath of God? If you're under the wrath of God, the Bible says that you are an enemy of God. You need to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to find freedom and forgiveness and eternal life. 
You see, the gospel of Jesus reminds us that each of us are sinners and that we're in need of a Savior. The gospel reminds us, I'm convinced of this, we need to hear it every day. Jerry Bridges used to talk about the necessity of preaching the gospel to yourself. Now, that doesn't mean standing in front of the mirror and preaching the gospel with with a suit on or a dress on. What it does mean is this. You remind yourself daily that you are a sinner. You do like John Newton did and remind yourself that you are a great sinner, but you serve a great Savior. The gospel reminds you that Jesus took the hit for every person who would ever believe. The gospel reminds us that we are imputed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? The gospel reminds us that Jesus was imputed with the sins of every person who would ever believe. It reminds us that we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We have been delivered from the power of sin. And here's what I'm discovering. I hear this, this, this lament from person after person after person. I just don't feel forgiven. I don't feel like the power of sin has been lifted. I don't feel like the penalty of sin has been lifted. And when you don't feel like that as a Christian, it's time to elevate the word of God and to remember the promises of God that you, if you are a follower of Jesus, have been delivered from the power of sin. You have been delivered from the penalty of sin. That's what the gospel reminds us of. But the gospel also reminds us that the final chapter has not yet been written. So for all of you who are suffering, all of you who are grieving, for all of you who have lost your loved ones, remember the final chapter has yet to be written where Jesus Christ will make all things new. This is what I have to remind myself of every day, that Jesus has not written the final chapter. He will make all things new and every tear will be dried up. There will be no more pain. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, the presence of sin wiped off the slate forever and ever. So when you contemplate the character of God, you were led to the cross of Jesus Christ. It was D.A. Carson who reminds us of how very important it is that we stay ever so close to the cross. May I ask you, have, have you discerned that many churches are moving away from the cross? Do I see some? I, I'm seeing this in droves. Is people are stepping away from the cross because the cross offends, you see. And that's true. The cross does offend. But here's what Carson says. Do you not understand that we overcome the accuser? On the ground of the blood of Christ, nothing more, nothing less. That is how we win. It is the only way we win. This is the only ground of our acceptance before God. That is why we can never get very far from the cross without distorting something so fundamental, not only in doctrine, but in elementary discipleship, faithful perseverance, obedience, and spiritual warfare against the enemy of our souls. And here are the words that just gripped me, and I hope they grip you. Carson says, if you drift far from the cross, you're done. You're defeated. Think about that. If you drift far from the cross, you are done. 
you are defeated. May you find yourself in the same posture as Habakkuk this morning. May you find yourself contemplating the character of God. May you find yourself praying God-centered prayers. May you find yourself drifting ever so closer to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to find comfort and help in time of need. How could we do anything less than to pray God-centered prayers? Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for this vivid reminder in Habakkuk chapter 3. Thank you once again for this man who, who sought answers from you. And we thank you for the answers that you have given him. We thank, thank you so much now for this model of what a God-centered prayer looks like. Remind us, God, of the context of this prayer, a, a prayer that was not only prayed by Habakkuk, a prayer that was prayed by the Jewish people as their enemies drew near the gates of the city. Lord, thank you that we have a great hope and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our aim now is to, to draw near to the cross. I pray for anyone who is uh, struggling, for anyone who faces a season of spiritual warfare, or a season of discouragement, a season of uh, uh, persecution. Lord, I pray that they would have a, a, a change of mind this morning, that they would begin to pray God-centered prayers just like Habakkuk did in this chapter. May this chapter serve as a template for our prayer lives from this day forward, both now and evermore. In Jesus' name, amen.